Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis into all the big talking points in football. I'm Ian McGarry and with me is Duncan Castles as always. We have a packed pod for you today, featuring all the biggest stories happening as usual. Newcastle United, Manchester United, Chelsea, Manchester City, all featuring in today's show. Now, Duncan, you have led the way on the Newcastle United takeover story. Obviously, there have been huge developments in the past 24 hours regarding what appears to be the this withdrawal of the Saudi Arabian backers uh, who were prepared to pay much of the £300 million to buy out the St James's Park Club and, of course, the very popular owner with the fans, Mike Ashley. Uh, it seems that there's been very little information, Duncan, with regards to what actually happened with regards to this falling apart. But, as usual, you're the man with the facts. Yeah, uh, the Saudi Arabian Sovereign Wealth Fund issued a statement yesterday um, through their city uh, media company, Edelman, saying that uh, the prolonged process under the current circumstances, coupled with global uncertainty, has rendered the potential investment no longer commercially viable. Um, Now, this is really unusual for Saudi Arabian uh, company and and Saudi Arabian Sovereign Wealth Fund to make a statement on a failed investment. Um, They do not, as we told you in the podcast many times, they do do not talk about investments and deals until they are not only completed, but um, all the paperwork has gone through. And we told you that even when the, the Premier League had they given approval for this takeover, and interestingly, they, they didn't give approval, but they also didn't um, prevent it from happening, which is part of the, the story here. It would take uh, three or four days before the Saudi Arabians would speak. And they have um, held to that silence throughout this um, extremely extended process. And ironically, the first time they say anything is that um, they have withdrawn. They've said that, yet we have then have a statement um, on behalf of Mike Ashley, the current owner of Newcastle United and the, the man almost every Newcastle United fan wants to see the back of, issued by his uh, senior executive at the club, Lee Charnley, saying, we acknowledge yesterday's statement, never say never, But to be clear, Mike Ashley is 100% committed to this deal. And then saying, however, our current focus must now be on supporting Steve Bruce in the transfer market and on the preparations for the new season. You can add to that some interviews that Amanda Staveley, um, the principal and lead of PCP Capital, the company that put this bid together and, and brought the Saudis in as 80% um, source of cash for the bid, that um, she wasn't ruling out the possibility that the deal could be resurrected. Um, The background to this, and I think the most important element here, is that the Premier League did not make a decision over Saudi Arabia's suitability as a um, co-owner of a Premier League football club. The, the, The owner and director's test um, that we have all been um, and examining and wondering whether a nation state would be allowed to become uh, a buyer of a Premier League club, uh, particularly a nation state with the human rights record, um, the record on uh, TV broadcasting, blocking the, the BM broadcasts within its own country, um, piracy, a World Trade Trade Organization decision that went against it, whether that could pass the test. Um, the test was not actually administered um, and no decision was given by the Premier League in the end. And I think um, talking to people involved in this process, that has angered the buying parties more than anything else. Um, they feel they provided all the information that was asked of them. 
Um, they, they say that they were guided that it would take three to four weeks initially for, um, for the paperwork um, and the assessment to be made by the Premier League. That didn't happen. Um, and they feel betrayed in the sense that they expected the Premier League um, it has a, a, a duty as an organising body to put its own rules into effect. And therefore, they expected them to make a decision one way or the other. And their argument is that by holding off and making a decision, by taking such a long time over it, they've effectively forced the hand of PIF and resulted in PIF stepping away from the deal and made the, the situation of a member club far more difficult than it should be in the sense that Newcastle now have uh, a transfer window to deal with, uh, with Mike Ashley providing the finance or the club itself providing the finance based on its established revenues, having entered or or gone into this summer, thinking they would have very substantial resources, new resources coming to them from the consortium, um, and and building a transfer policy around that, and indeed. Uh, Amanda Staveley in the interview she gave yesterday said that um, the the group was prepared to put an additional £250 million of funding in over the next five years in order to strengthen Newcastle United and make them fully competitive in the Premier League. And I, I think this is a this is a justified argument on uh, on the, the buyer's part um, that the Premier League have an obligation to give a decision. Um, their argument is that not only did they fail to make that decision, they would not give a time frame on when the decision would be made. So they couldn't go um, uh, and, and reconsider their strategy on the basis of, well, at least in two weeks or a week or three weeks, we will know one way or another what uh, the resolution on this is. They were just left hanging in the air. Um, it leaves, I think, Newcastle United in a very difficult position. Um, there is a sense from what I'm hearing that certainly Amanda Staveley would like to uh, restart the process, would, would like to complete this deal. She has lost um, a significant amount of money in the, the £70 million deposit that the group uh, put forward in order to have their bid um, accepted by Mike Ashley and in order for the Premier League to make a judgment on it has been lost by the bidders. Um, she went through a process in which I'm told Mike Ashley had, had tried to increase the, the quantum of the deal. So the takeover was worth £300 million um, initially. And I'm told that after the, the 26 June deadline expired, Ashley tried to add another 10 to 15% onto that um, agreed fee uh, in order to allow the, the process to continue. I'm told that the, the buyers refused to do that. Um, that wasn't um, the, the reason this, this fell apart. It was down to the Premier League not making a decision. Um, and I think also Mike Ashley's comments, albeit coming through Lee Charnley, suggest that he would also be open to resurrecting the deal um, if uh, some way could be found to get the Premier League to actually um, decide that they, Saudi Arabia should be allowed to be involved in as an owner of a, of a Premier League club and PIF can be brought back into the process, having now formally said uh, they are giving up on, on what they, they talk about being um, purely a commercial deal for them, which is, again, something we mentioned in, in the podcast while we were reporting on this, that um, rather than it being a, a nation-state sports-washing project, Saudi Arabia wanted saw this as um, a commercial enterprise and, and a profitable uh, enterprise with a specific time frame to get a return on the investment and, and wanted to present it as being something different from the kind of project Abu Dhabi had when buying Manchester City or when Qatar had when, when buying Paris Saint-Germain. Indeed. Um, and you can see the reality of that in terms of the current financial climate of buy low, sell high. 
and perhaps Newcastle United would be worth more money, certainly in the future, and also with investment put in Duncan. But there was an interesting mention of Saudi Arabia being formally represented as a director on the board of Newcastle United, which may have had an impact on what we've seen in the last day or so. Yeah, again, you can um, look at Stavely's comment on this, and she said the Premier League wanted the country, Saudi, to become a director of the football club. That's what this is about. Um, They were effectively saying PIF wouldn't be the ultimate beneficial owner. We believe it's actually the government, therefore we want the country to become a director, which puts them, and she's referring there to PIF, in an impossible situation. They feel they weren't wanted by the Premier League. Um, my information is that that is a proposal the Premier League came up with quite a long way through this process of examining credentials. Um, I'm told that they were asking about Saudi Arabia's involvement. They were not convinced that uh, that ownership would end with PIF. Uh, they were not convinced that the the leader of Saudi Arabia would not be involved in the Newcastle project, which is what the buyers were saying. They were saying it was a commercial venture, that it was a sovereign wealth fund, that the Saudi government would not have a direct role on the board. Um, I'm told that when uh, the buyers came back with those answers, the Premier League did not accept them and eventually came up with this proposal, uh, which is something I've never heard before, that Saudi Arabia formally became a director of the football club, which is a a fascinating strategy and proposal if you think about it, because the Premier League there are taking a lot of um, uh, weight on themselves to to come up with a kind of new ownership structure where a country would be a director of a club. And the suspicion would be that once the, uh, the buyers had accepted that format where Saudi Arabia were named as a director of the football club, the Premier League could then use its owner and director's test to say, well, Saudi Arabia has broken international law, therefore you are not allowed to pass our test, therefore the deal falls through. Now, that's just my reading of the situation. Um I've talked to people involved and they they did not dissuade me from that reading of the situation, but it is unprecedented. And and also, and and I I have sympathy here with the buyers, it is unprecedented for the Premier League to take this long over a decision as to whether buyers should be allowed to buy a club in the Premier League or not. Um, And, you know, I think ultimately the, the, the biggest loser here are the Newcastle United fans because they have had to wait through all of this. They have not had clarity on what is happening. They now have their club in a more difficult position going into the next season than it would be had the, the deal been ruled out within a four-week period. Um, I personally am not in favour of nation-state ownership, but you can see why they are tired of Mike Ashley's ownership and why I think 99 or 97% of them in a, in a poll um, conducted by the Newcastle United Supporters Trust were in favour of the takeover, regardless of who the, the ultimate owners might be. Newcastle's first ever country club, that would have been certainly something uh, for sure. I saw one of those fans that you referred to, Duncan, on a television news channel this morning, and he sums up, I think, the mood of the Geordie faithful and the Toon army And when he said, this goes to prove that what we all knew already, nothing good ever happens to Newcastle United. <laughs> now, is it your understanding that this is the end of the affair? Was that Sean Custis on TV? Our friend, our good friend Sean. Uh, it, it definitely was not Sean, no, but it could have been. <laughs> um, is it the end of the affair? Uh, look, I think you can see from what Amanda Stavely is saying that she uh, hopes she can still resurrect a purchase of Newcastle United Football Club. That is not surprising, given that this is a project she's been working on for. I think over three years now, um, with various 
buyers. In fact, in, in part of those interviews, that there's a mention that they initially tried to to make the purchase of Newcastle United with Chinese capital rather than Saudi capital. Um, I think she will try again. Um, the obvious thing for her to do is to try and get the Saudis back on board. Um, that, to me, seems a very difficult proposition to make happen um, for the reasons I, I mentioned earlier. They don't make public comments normally. Um, to comment on a failed takeover is not their style, and uh, and I, I doubt it will be per, will be um, perceived um, generously in the country. So that, in a sense, this is a failure for PIF. Um, that which is ultimately um, one of the, the important bodies of, of that nation state of the of the Saudi royal family. Um, but when you have Mike Ashley um, talking about still being on board with the deal or talking about it via his, his senior executive and you have the, the principal buyer um, trying to resurrect it and, you know, it does remain the case that the Premier League hasn't actually formally made a decision on this. So you can see an avenue in which if, for some reason, Amanda Stabley was able to persuade PIF to get back on board, they could take the information back to the Premier League and say, right, we need a decision now. And 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 obviously Mike Ashley is a minority shareholder in the Premier League through Newcastle United, each club has a has a five percent shareholding. Um, therefore, Mike Ashley, if he chose to go down that line, would have some kind of recourse against the Premier League that they have failed to exercise their responsibilities as a board to apply Premier League rules in this case. That certainly will be fascinating uh, to see what Ashley does. We know he's a man who likes to look after the pennies, who famously took. Rafa Benitez out for an £8.95 lasagna in order to sort out his new contract. So uh, losing £300 million is probably not something he's going to take lying down. Another club recently embroiled in administrative controversy and accusations uh, of all sorts of things are Manchester City. Duncan, let's deal quickly with the transfer uh, business that City have been doing. They've moved quite swiftly uh, after the CAS ruling, which said that they will uh, allow to play in Champions League for the next two seasons, having originally been banned by UEFA for those two campaigns. Uh, as you revealed on the podcast, Ferran Torres uh, is due to join from Valencia. Uh, and also we reported uh, to everyone that Guardiola is looking for not one, but two centre-backs this in this summer window and a £41 million fee has been agreed for Nathan Aki. Interesting, Duncan, uh, that uh, Manchester City have offered £41 million to Bournemouth for Aki uh, and that is because Chelsea have a buyback clause having sold a player to the South Coast Club in 2017 for £20 million and that buyback clause is £40 million City have offered 41 uh, in order to scare off Chelsea, who are not actually very interested in buying Aki back anyway, because they want a dominant centre-half, as we have reported many times on the Transfer Window podcast. Uh, still better, Duncan, than the £1 extra Arsenal offered for Luis Suarez in his agreed buyout clause some years ago. Um, however, the uh, transfer news, yep, it's, that's it, really. But more importantly, and certainly significantly, further allegations following the Court of Arbitration for Sport ruling uh, regarding City's uh, attempts to circumnavigate uh, financial fair play rules uh, in Der Spiegel this week. Um, and CAS themselves, Duncan, have released the full findings and statement. And they make for very interesting reading. And certainly for our listeners who have been glued to this case, it's fair to say. Yeah, just just on those signings, I'll say that um, you know Nathan, it's a lot of money to spend on Nathan Aki, who will be the second choice centre back and and can play on the left side of defence, can play as a left back. One of their attractions to him, you can see that he fits Guardiola's type of play as a as a 
guys very comfortable on the ball, but they've had a they've had a lot of problems filling that position, and and there is some doubts amongst football um, observers and and scouts that that's the right answer for them, and and there are also some question marks over Ferran Torres, um, who's a different style of player um, to Leroy Zani, who he appears to be. Um, the replacement for, but he, he doesn't have his pace. Um, I've talked to a couple of people who said they actually see him more as a as a player who could play in, in David Silva's position um, than as an out and out winger. And um, at least one person who thinks that it's a it's a bad signing um, from Manchester City, and they, they don't think he'll uh, meet the standard required. But we'll we'll find out about that in the in the years or so to come. Um, we found out. Finally, um, what the CAS um, award was, uh, the details of why they made that award and why um, the the two-year uh, Champions League competition ban was lifted and why the 30 million euro um, fine was reduced to 10 million euros. We also found out quite a lot about the original UEFA um, semi-independent adjudicatory chamber verdict. There are quite long sections of that presented in the CAS um, award statement, which is very detailed. Um, it's it's an in-depth document. Um, interestingly, I had quite a few Manchester City supporters sending me messages saying, are you going to be doing something about that on the, on the podcast? Because we we enjoy your um, your independent view in these matters and and uh, and help explain through some of the detail for that for us and so I'll try and do that and I'll try and keep it as brief as possible. Um, in the UEFA judgment, what is detailed is that UEFA found Manchester City guilty of contravening seven separate financial fair play articles. Um, there is a statement uh, that they make where they say that when they explain the punishment that was handed down to Manchester City, that one must bear in mind that this case represents the most serious, sophisticated, deliberate and fundamental attempt to circumvent and violate basic financial fair play principles. Therefore, the imposed sanction must take into account the unprecedented nature of this case in scale, sophistication and duration. It must take account of the financial volume of the case. And they go on to say that um, Manchester City overstated its sponsorship income by amounts exceeding £200 million in the period in which they had um, evidence for, and that um, only counting the seasons 2013-14 to 16-17, Manchester City obtained prize money from its participation in the Champions League at an amount of more than £215 million. So they're saying um, the amount hidden was huge, the amount gained potentially from hiding that was huge, therefore this is why we have kicked them out of the Champions League for two years. Um, Lots of interesting parts to the cast judgment, um, which kind of directly contradict some of the statements Manchester City made about UEFA. Um, you remember Manchester City claiming that UEFA's court was biased and that UEFA had ignored irrefutable evidence um, presented by Manchester City in the, when the, the case went to the, the UEFA court. Cass's uh, verdict on that is that UEFA by no means filed frivolous charges against Manchester City. As also acknowledged by Manchester City, there was a legitimate basis to prosecute Manchester City. So they're saying that Manchester City admitted in the end in front of Cass that UEFA had a case, a fair case, um, and, and they were justified in presenting it. A really important part is that all of the key decisions in terms of um, hiding, disguising equity as sponsorship, um, in terms of time barring uh, certain bits of evidence and removing them from the cast decision were all majority decisions. Um, the panel had three members. 
uh, one nominated by UEFA, um, one uh, nominated by Manchester City, and a chair who, interestingly, was also nominated by Manchester City in that um, the chair uh, is decided upon with CAS presenting a, a range of potential chairmen. Um, Manchester City said they would like to have this individual, um, Rui Botica Santos, a Portuguese, and UEFA did not object to that. So that's how the, the chair was decided. The, the arbitrator that Manchester City nominated was an individual called Andrew Du Lotbinier McDougall, um, a Queen's Council based in France who um, was a partner at an international law firm, White & Case. Um, now, that international law firm have a lot of business in Abu Dhabi. Um, McDougall was actually chair of the firm's Operations Council for Europe, the Middle East and Africa from 2016 to 2018. Um, the office uh, lists Etisalat, um, one of the, the sponsors uh, relevant to this case, and Etihad, another of the sponsors relevant to this case, as well as several Abu Dhabi state enterprises as clients. Um, now, cast rules say that arbitrators must be independent, holding no particular connection with any of the parties. And to be clear, there's not a suggestion of any actual bias on the part of any arbitrator. But note that these are majority decisions on the, the key aspects of the case. Um, one central element to the cast decision was they decided that a large body of evidence that UEFA had gathered via the leaked um, Der Spiegel emails and uh, limited access to financial documents was on Etisalat um, and payments of 50 million euros, uh, sorry, 50 million pounds a year as sponsorship uh, to Manchester City which they um, demonstrated were actually provided by ADUG, the, the holding company for Manchester City that's owned um, uh, normally by Sheikh Mansour. So um, the, there's a large body of evidence on Etisalat's um, not actually providing the, the money um, that was added to Manchester City's accounts in Etisalat's name, a sponsorship. UEFA decided that all of that on a majority decision should be thrown out because the money was paid um, before the five-year statute of limitations that UEFA accepted it had in which to prosecute um, FFP transgressions. Um, now, the counter-argument is that uh, UEFA were only, could only find out that that, that uh, money had been incorrectly attributed as uh, sponsorship when it was act actually equity funding and after um, the five-year period had started. But um, the, the CAS decision was it didn't matter that UEFA didn't have the opportunity to examine that, um, that money until um, they were past the the 2014 deadline. Um, the fact that it had been paid pre-2014 meant it had to be excluded. Um, we also find out that the vast majority of witnesses that UEFA asked to be made available by Manchester City, and these were the people who wrote or received emails that were published by Der Spiegel, were not provided um, by Manchester City during the UEFA adjudicatory case. Um, we also find that UEFA asked for uh, further um, emails uh, connected to the ones that were published by De Spiegel to, to provide context and to allow Manchester City to demonstrate that the emails had been quoted out of context, which is something that, which was a central part of their defence through this entire process. Manchester City did not provide those to UEFA and eventually did not provide them to CAS. Um, and uh, the stance during the UEFA case that um, there were serious questions as to the reliability of the criminally obtained documents. 
um, UEFA's response is that that was highly ironic, given that Manchester City was repeatedly asked to confirm whether or not these documents were genuine. And Manchester City refused throughout to provide an answer to this question. So UEFA are basically saying, well, you claim these documents aren't genuine. You must tell, if they're not genuine, tell us that, uh, that they're forged. Um, you can't not give us an answer as to whether they are um, real or not, um, which is the, their central stance until they got to CAS, where they recognised in front of CAS that the emails published by Der Spiegel were genuine um, and provided uh, the original email with some parts redacted for each of those for CAS to make a, a judgment on. Another key element is that at no stage in this process did Manchester City provide full access to their accounts or to the accounts of the sponsors um, so that the investigatory bodies could check and see whether the, the payments were legitimate or not. They did um, provide an audit that was produced by um, Ernst & Young um, of the accounts, but as the CAS panel describes, um, the results of an agreed upon procedure are not as reliable and independent as an official independent audit where the auditor has full access to the books. Majority of the panel nonetheless find that the conclusions of Ernst the Young do support Manchester City's case, which is a kind of bizarre paragraph because they're saying uh, it wasn't an official independent audit, but two out of the three judges say it's good enough. UEFA make the point that Throughout the process, Manchester City's behaviour, and I quote, shows that it has something to hide. Manchester City continued to criticise the process rather than giving answers on the merit. It changes its stories and its explanations. It suddenly produces new witnesses with new and lengthy explanations, all of which are implausible. Um, and two final elements. The cast gave a very large degree of weight to Manchester City's witnesses, um, which included a written statement from Sheikh Mansour that he had not authorised Adog to make any payments to Etihad, Etislat or any of the affiliates in relation to their sponsorship of Manchester City. Um, they talk about Simon Pearce, who um, uh, one of the directors of, of Manchester City and a senior individual in the Abu Dhabi government when asked if, if he'd arranged payments to be made to Etihad um, from the Abu Dhabi government in relation to its sponsorship obligations in Manchester City, Pierce answered absolutely categorically false. And they say that Mr. Pierce did not strike the panel as an un unreliable witness. And then the final point, which is I think very important here is that they not only did they, they rule out the Etihad evidence as being time barred, they also refused um, to allow it to educate other elements of the evidence that were not time barred. So um, the, the, the phrase they use is a legal phrase, fruit of the poisoned tree. Um, and the idea here is that if you have gained information through an unfair um, or prejudicial investigatory process, then that information should be not should not be allowed um, for punishment purposes or should not be allowed um, as evidence of other behaviour, um, which is, um, which has not been time barred, uh, to assess whether um, a, a controversy of the rules had occurred. Um, and talking uh, to um, some lawyers who say that's um, logical and legal nonsense and and even if uh, you use the time bar to say UEFA cannot punish on the Etisalat uh, payments, you can use the evidence that the Etisalat payments were provided by Abu Dhabi from equity and as as a as a, a to de demonstrate a pattern of behaviour which other evidence um, of emails for the Etihad payments supports and then punish on the basis of the Etihad payments. CAS, again, in a majority decision said, not only can you not punish on Etihad, you can't even use it to educate the rest of your decision making. And that essentially is why the, 
um, casts were able to remove the ban because the Etisalat evidence was the strongest evidence you ever had. It was stripped out by the time bar rule and and then the cast judges decided that the Etihad um, evidence was not substantial enough to override that of uh, the witness uh, statements Manchester City officials and Abu Dhabi officials made. Therefore, um, the only thing that Manchester City should be punished for was failing to cooperate with the investigation. Everyone who is familiar on the Transfer Window podcast with the quick fire round will not have been surprised <laughs> that when Duncan introduced his answer as going to be concise, that he would then go on for 12 minutes <laughs> explaining everything in its minutiae. Um, which leads me it took, to took took me five hours to read through that document last night. Ian. <laughs> which is why, which is why we respect you and love you because you take all the time to make sense of it for us in such a short space of time. But also, I think um, it makes us think a reprise. Certainly, that famous question we once asked on the Transfer Window podcast, which was, "How many kangaroos does it take to make a court?" Kangaroos aside, uh, Der Spiegel have published more emails this week, which do look quite incriminating um, in terms of the case. Duncan, uh, one in particular, I think, which uh, was sent by uh, Simon Pierce uh, regarding payments, uh, seems to be the highlight, if you like, or the headline of uh, the new information which has been made public. Um, Given that information and also its content, do you think there's any chance that this might be uh, the end or would it possibly be the case that uh, UEFA or any other governing body would be forced to re-examine some of the evidence in the light of new information? Well, it's interesting you mention kangaroos because Simon Pierce spends quite a lot of his time in Australia and I understand actually testified by video link um, from Australia uh, to the CAS court, which of course was during the COVID period. So some of the UEFA lawyers were also required to do the cross-examination um, via video link, um, which obviously um, makes, makes a process of assessing cross-examining and assessing witnesses' credibility, I think a little bit more difficult. Some some people in, in legal profession will tell you that. But yes, the Der Spiegel responded by providing new emails, um, new evidence that equity uh, had been disguised as a sponsorship, and one in particular from Simon Pierce um, saying, embarrassingly, it, it would seem that rather... Uh, than overpaying you, I've underpaid you. Um, and he goes on to say uh, that I therefore should have forwarded £91 million and instead of sent only £88.5 million, I effectively owe you £2.5 million. Um, and then he goes on again to say Etihad, um, talking about um, uh, in these emails, Etihad, £68.9 million with £8 million paid direct by them to total base fee of £65.7 million, £8.9 million paid to Melbourne and the US. So it's more evidence suggesting that uh, the money was coming not from the sponsor Etihad itself, or rather only £8 million of it was coming from the sponsor Etihad itself, and the rest was coming from Abu Dhabi sources, which of course would be a, convent, uh, a contravention of the FFP rules. Manchester City responded uh, very quickly with a statement saying the questions and matters raised by Der Spiegel appear to be a cynical attempt to publicly relitigate and undermine a case that has been fully adjudicated after detailed proceedings and due process by the Court of Arbitration for Sport. Manchester City's policy remains not to comment on out-of-context materials purported to have been criminally obtained from City Football Group and Manchester City personnel. Is it the end of the process? Um, I, I, I think UEFA will be... It's a very big test of UEFA if they're prepared to go and try and challenge us. It is... There are grounds in which you can appeal against the CAS award. Um, they are 
in Cass's own phrase, very limited number of grounds, such as a lack of jurisdiction, a violation of elementary procedural rules or incompatibility with public policy. I think more important is um, whether UEFA would have the stomach to carry on that fight. I think what you can ask a question about is um, the Premier League have also been asked to investigate this and that's very much been left in the, in the background while UEFA had their uh, court procedure and CAS had their court procedure. There may be pressure from Premier League clubs to say, well, look, here's even more email evidence of Manchester City breaking the rules. Um, we want you to investigate this properly and we want to have a proper um, Premier League assessment on this. And certainly Manchester City have made a point out of the Premier League cl clubs who wrote to CAS um, asking that uh, that uh, any Champions League ban that CAS um, decided to implement should not be stayed because uh, the court procedure took too long. So the there is evidence there that um, other Premier League clubs, and by no means all Premier League clubs, were uh, keen to see Manchester City punished, and therefore perhaps they will they will use these new emails as as ammunition to try and get that punishment um, meted out by the domestic regulators rather than the European regulators. Uh, the Maleficent Seven, I believe, they have been dubbed. Uh, those <laughs> Premier League clubs um, who wrote to CAS um, pressuring them to uphold Manchester City's European ban. Uh, it'll be very interesting to see if indeed that uh, they regroup and try to do something similar based on new evidence. One thing that is certain with regards to uh, Manchester City, we discussed already in the pod, the recruitment of Nathan Ake. Uh, which seems to spell the end of John Stone's rather um, torrid, it has to be said, uh, time at the Etihad Stadium. Uh, West Ham United are the latest club to be linked with the player, Everton having been linked as well, obviously his former club. Now, Duncan, I think what's interesting, I suppose, uh, about this particular um, proposal with regards to Stones and West Ham is that uh, they've got two established centre-backs in Diop and Agbona. We have reported in the pod in the last few weeks Chelsea's interest in Declan Rice, who of course has been playing in a defensive midfield role, but Frank Lampard sees him as, as part of a back three or a back four. Now, if they are going to spend, let's just estimate at this point in time, but maybe around £30 million on John Stones, it does suggest that they are preparing themselves for the departure of Rice, which obviously will be very encouraging for Chelsea in their pursuit of the player, although they're yet to agree a fee with West Ham United. Um, Stones has been a little bit of a troubled character off the field. We know that with regards to his personal life. Do you think a move away from City is the best thing for his career now? Because he does seem to be struggling a lot. I think it's very difficult for him to remain at Manchester City and uh, and re-establish himself as a as a first choice and, and and get himself back into the frame to be first choice for England, which he was uh, for some time. Um, <laughs> we've we've told you Manchester City want to sign two centre backs. Uh, in this window, um, Nathan Aki is the cheaper of those two. They they want a top class starting centre back to to play alongside Emerick Laporte, um, and Kaladu Kulabai is one of a number of very expensive centre backs uh, they're looking at as options for that position. We've detailed those individuals on on previous podcasts. Um, you don't spend that much on new defenders with the intention of keeping the defender that you who has been what third choice at times fourth choice for you this season. So it does look like John Stones needs to get away from Pep Guardiola. Um, I think Pep Guardiola has made a decision on him as a player, and uh, 
quite often you you find with players of, of that type who remember Manchester City weren't the only club who, who wanted to sign Stones when he was at Everton. There was a big fight for his services, ironically Chelsea being uh, the most prominent of the competitors for um, his signature at that time. I think players who who fail after a big transfer like that, they can drop down a tier or so in the Premier League, um, become regular starters again and resurrect their careers quite quickly. And, and you could see that being a, a, a reasonably attractive proposition for Stones um, if he wants to to get himself back to the level he was at uh, before he joined Manchester City. It'll certainly be uh, something which is uh, a popular uh, uh, vibe for Frank Lampard, who we know is desperate to augment and improve his defence if indeed Stones goes to his old club, of course, West Ham, and Rice therefore becomes much more available for transfer. We can also tell you today that Chelsea's pursuit of German international Kai Havertz from Bayer Leverkusen has progressed a little bit. It's becoming a bit of a saga the way that uh, many other transfers have in the last three or four months. But it's our understanding that Chelsea, having um, met with Bayer Leverkusen officials this week, we told you uh, in our Tuesday podcast that Petr Cech had visited uh, Leverkusen to speak to officials there and indeed the player about a possible move to Stamford Bridge and that, that has resulted in a opening bid of 50 million euros plus 10 million euros in add-ons so 60 million in total uh, Leverkusen continue uh, to value the player at around 90 million euros that's something that Chelsea uh, do not believe is a fair price for the 21-year-old. However, they obviously are keen to get the player and are willing to pay what is a substantial fee, Duncan, in the current climate, etc., etc. But this seems to be now in Chelsea's policy for this window. They seem to be, you know, as we said before, firing the £50 notes or the €50 notes in this case. Um, Havertz, is he going to be a luxury player or is he going to be an uh, integral part of Lampard's team next season should he sign? Well, they're, they're certainly not trying to sign him as a, as a luxury player, um, but that will come down to Frank Lampard's decision and, as to how he wants to play him and who he wants to play and when he wants to play. We saw uh, Christian Pulisic taking uh, a degree of time to get himself into Frank Lampard's thoughts um, as, a, as a starting player for Chelsea this season, but he managed to do it. Um, I, I think you see with Frank Lampard in, in his first year of management at Chelsea, he, he makes the decisions um, as to the best team on the pitch for a given game rather than the, the transfer fee or the salary the, pair, the, the player is being paid. Uh, and what the club have paid for him. I mean, this is a manager who dropped the most expensive goalkeeper in the world by transfer fee for the decisive final game of the season. He's he's not afraid to make those decisions and he's stored up a fair amount of credit with the attractive football they've played um, and that qualification for the Champions League, albeit with a, a very large number of losses, um, with poor defensive record and, and just scraping in in a, in a season where everyone outside Manchester City and Liverpool had, uh, had substandard um, campaigns uh, amongst the, the top six clubs. Um, I think it, the, the Havertz situation looks very similar to the Jadon Sancho situation. You've got two players with two year of contract remaining, um, both ready to go, uh, and leave their clubs, um, both clubs valuing the player at 100 million euros or more, um, both Chelsea and Manchester United making relatively low ball bids uh, for the players to start with and, and hoping that they can uh, use the COVID uh, pandemic damage to Bundesliga and European football to get themselves a bargain from the, from the two deals. For the Bundesliga uh, action in the transfer window, of course. 
and the equally or indeed longer running saga of Jadon Sancho's on-off move to Manchester United, which we have reported many times on the pod, as you guys know, has also taken a bit of a step forward. It's our understanding that an informal, and we stress informal as in uh, this has not been made in writing uh, and therefore is the kind of action that football clubs make and take when they wish to establish or indeed sniff out um, what the selling club are looking for. Bid of 60 million euros. Remember, Jason Sancho was valued at around 110 million euros by his club, Borussia Dortmund. 60 million, so that would be half of the, uh, just less than half of the original asking price, and plus a potential 20 million euros in add-ons. So 80 million in, uh, in total has been mooted and informally discussed for Sancho to make the move from Dortmund to Manchester United. But probably just as interesting, or maybe more interesting, Duncan, because uh, it is something that you have spoken about uh, recently and also uh, before now, is that United's interest in wool striker uh, Raul Jimenez, who you have said Wolves value at a huge sum as well, but um, Wolves themselves appear to be making plans for the potential, for the potential departure of the Mexico international. Yeah, I, I think Wolves have been quite open about this um, with Jimenez for some time now, and it's they are ready to let the player leave if their um, transfer demands can be satisfied to go to a, a bigger club. I mean, they recognise the quality of his play and, and the way he's established himself as one of the, the top Premier League strikers and also done extremely well in European competition and that he's 29 years of age. Therefore, if Manchester United or Juventus, who are, who are I'm told, pushing far harder um, for the player uh, at present, um, come up with the right offer, they, they will sell him and they'll allow the player to move on. Um, Manchester United's interest dates back uh, quite some time when they were looking for a centre forward uh, in the, the January window. I'm told it's not, they are not um, active on that at present. Um, they're not ruling out the possibility that, uh, that they'll, they'll uh, reinitiate their interest in this window, but they're not in, in a negotiation process with them either. But as you say, they are preparing that exit and I'm told that they are in the market for two strikers should Raul Jimenez leave. Um, and one of those players is um, players mentioned in the Portuguese press this week, Paulinho at uh, Braga, 27-year-old, uh, 1 meter 88 He scored 23 goals in 41 league and Europa League games last season. Um, Braga have him for three more years of contract. Fee of 30 million euros has been mooted. I don't think it's as advanced as has been reported. My information is that um, do not expect that deal to be completed in, in the coming week. There is an interest. He is a possibility, um, but he's a possibility of one of two players that they'll bring in should they get the fee they want for the Mexican striker. I'm sure George Mendez, our old friend, is on the phone as we speak to Nuno Espirito Santos. Uh, this, of course, is Friday's Transfer Window podcast, which means we will be concluding with the famous Donkey Award. And we've decided, and you know we don't do this very often, to go back to Duncan and I's homeland of Scotland to name this particular donkey, because if you have been living on Mars for the last uh, 10 years then you might not know that Celtic have won nine titles in a row and are going for a record 10th, which, of course, would take them beyond not only their own record that they set under Jock Steen in the 60s and 70s, but also Rangers who equaled that feat in the 80s and 90s. So um, our donkey for the week is the 10-in-a-row Bitter Rivalries in Football Award uh, if you don't know about the bit of rivalry between Celtic and Rangers, then, as I said, you're either living on Mars or you want to look it up on Twitter. You do the math for yourself. 
Duncan, I'm going to open the envelope and give you three nominations for the 10 in a row bit to rival the watch. And there we go. I'll just take out the uh, golden card. Ah, so the three nominees are Rafa Benitez and everyone, including Sir Alex Ferguson, Arsene Wenger, Josie Mourinho. Well, you could just keep going, couldn't you, with Rafa, um, facts and ghost goals, etc., etc. Uh, Josie Mourinho versus Arsene Wenger, the specialist in failure, as Josie liked to call him, as well as a voyeur. And Sir Alex Ferguson and the BBC, who enjoyed a seven-year battle of wits where he would not speak to them after a documentary on the channel uh, claimed that his son Jason, uh, acting as a football agent, had been involved in him propriety allegedly Duncan uh, well as usual you know it's your uh, privilege to award the golden statuette of yourself yeah we're talking a bit of rivalries I think uh, there's some nice evidence of that on my timeline this week after we reported on, on Rangers <laughs> attempt to uh, never <laughs> to uh, to up the fee on multiple occasions and Alfredo Morales which I can tell you has not uh, there has been no progress um, between Leo. Uh, our, our friendship with um, with Roger Mitch- Mitchell, um, who has con- contributed to a couple of excellent transfer window podcast discussions, was was brought up as evidence that uh, I could not be trusted. We're on, biased, on any, biased. any Rangers matter. Yes. Hail, hail. <laughs> um, most bitter rivalry. Uh, they are good candidates. I think we'll exclude Mourinho and Wenger because although that would have been the winner at one point, um, it kind of mellowed in latter years as I think as, as Mourinho has found um, what Wenger experienced that, um, that that winning touch can can start to decline as you, you move into your career and, uh, and then uh, talking about specialism and failure becomes a bit more dangerous. Um, <laughs> you too can be a specialist in failure," said Arsene Wenger. <laughs> well, he's too he's too too friendly to him now to actually say that. But yeah. um, yes. is, he, is he doing lecture lecture series on that? Is he? <laughs> um, Rafa Benitez, uh, yes, he, he does come across as as kind of quite bitter at times. Um, you've had a few run-ins with Rafa in in various press rooms, haven't you, Ian? Indeed, I have. Yes, it's true. But then there's very few managers I haven't had a few run-ins with. <laughs> Including Alec Ferguson, who... Did did he ever ban you from interviews for a period of time, as he did with the BBC? Yes. <laughs> How many years did you get? Just the one. Okay, well, I, I think Ferguson has to win because anyone who... Any manager who manages to uh, refuse to speak to the national broadcaster for a seven-year period... Um, while he's employed by a Premier League club who have obligations uh, to talk to those broadcasters, that is taking bitterness to to quite a level. Should we just mention very quickly the anecdote, which I think is brilliant, when uh, he gave um, Neil Custis an absolute rollicking uh, for a story that was published in the morning of a Manchester United press conference. Uh, it lasted around six minutes, I'm told. Uh, only for only for when he finished, for Neil to say, "I didn't write that; it was my brother Sean." <laughs> we've obviously mentioned this podcast already, and and Fergie's answer was, "Too many custises," <laughs> which of course is wrong because the um, it should have been custai, not custises. Anyway. Uh, that's it for today's Transfer Window podcast. We hope you have enjoyed and been informed and entertained. We are very grateful to many of you, in fact, who have uh, subscribed to our YouTube channel. And please continue to do so if you find that is a convenient way for you to listen to the podcast. Just simply log on to YouTube and search Transfer Window Podcast. Also, if you've enjoyed what you have heard today and all the other podcasts that we have of course brought to you then please 
get onto um, iTunes, <clears throat> give us a five-star review, um, which many of you have done. Uh, it expands the community, keeps the debate going, and please do keep the debate going. Any issues that we have spoken about today, any topics, any questions, please get in touch through our social media channels. They are at Transfer Podcast on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. And Duncan uh, on Twitter is at Duncan Castles. And I am at Garbo SJ. As you know, we like to uh, engage and respond and keep the debate going in between the times that we bring you these pods. We hope you have a very good weekend because this is Friday's podcast and we will be back next week. Uh, It just leaves me to say, stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening.